Faith is, of course, one of those slippery words, those church words that we throw out from time to time. The word faith often falls flat on the ears of those who are listening because we use it as almost a standalone word. Do you have faith? Have you expressed your faith? Do you believe? But faith in and of itself means nothing. And to build his case for our faith, the last verse in the chapter, John chapter 20, verse 31, it's the climax of the chapter. It's the climax of his entire gospel. Verse 31, I'll read it out of the New Living Translation. So these things John wrote. So everything that has been written up to date, right? So all 20 chapters, we're at the last verse of chapter 20. One more chapter to go and we'll come to it next week. John wrote all of these things that you might believe and it's written in the sense of that you might continue to believe. Go on believing that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. John never allows his audience, whenever John is writing and he's making his case, making his point, he never allows his audience to simply accept what he has written in a casual, take-it-or-leave-it, matter-of-fact kind of way, but by leaning in on what God has revealed through His Son, Jesus, John calls not only for your consent to the facts, but your commitment to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This final verse then provides us a vantage point from which we can look back on the entire gospel, and we're going to do that. We're actually going to work our way backwards from verse 31, and for our purposes this morning, working our way back up through verse 19. Let me read it together, and then we'll come back and work our way from the bottom back up. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, Sunday, Pentecost on Sunday, and so we have now a new pattern that's being established. No more on Saturday, but now Sunday is our Sabbath, our, our day of worship, being the first day of the week when the doors were open or were shut, excuse me, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Three times in this chapter. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands, his side. Remember Friday we read about the piercing. They didn't break his legs. They pierced, blood and water poured out. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said unto them, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. So now we have this commissioning of the, of, the, of the disciples. And when he had said this, he breathed unto them, and uh, saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. This new thing that was happening that comes on them uh, there, it came in the wind of the upper room, it is now spoken on them, it comes at Pentecost. Whosoever sin you remit, they are remitted unto him. Now, I will come back to this verse because it's a troubling verse for some. It's simplified in many, many, many translations that uh, really leaves us thinking wrong about this. 
But whosoever sin you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But Thomas, right? What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. One of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. A week later. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We've seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails. I thrust my hand into his side. Lest that, I will not believe. And after eight days, again his disciples were within, and Thomas saith unto him, Then came Jesus, the doors again being shut, and stood in the midst. So now we know how we'll move around in heaven, right? There'll be no opening and closing of doors. I don't know how it all happens, but it's, it's fabulous. And he said again, Peace be unto you. So this third time, and Saith he to Thomas, reach hither. He knew what Thomas needed. Reach hither thy finger. Behold my hands. Reach and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, this wonderful, perhaps greatest, simplest confession of faith in all of Scripture, my Lord and my God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are they, you, who having not seen and yet believe. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Everything leading up to this point of resurrection impacts our faith. Nowhere in Scripture are you called to blind faith. Some people have the sense that faith is just a blind faith. On any given circumstance, and anything that you might be going through, on any given occasion, there might be something, and there probably is, Something that you look at and that you experience and that you're in the midst of and you say to yourself or you think it, I don't understand. Why would God do this, allow this to happen? But your faith in that moment, Hebrews 11, is because of up to this point, everything you've ever known, everything you've read, everything you've experienced is the substance of, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance and evidence of faith is always everything leading up to the questions that you are now facing. And so now you can express your faith beyond your present understanding, right? Philippians 4. Because of all the the input, all the things you've experienced, everything you've read, you've heard, they've made deposits into your soul, and now you can express your faith based upon that substance, based upon that evidence. But if you're not making regular deposits of God's Word into your heart, if you're not taking note of God's work in your life, you'll often end up like doubting Thomas, right? day late and a dollar short, a week later, demanding something more in order that you might believe now, in order that now, in the midst of this thing you're experiencing, you might be convinced. But neither can simply declaring faith in faith, like I have faith, faith 
in faith. I believe. But you have to believe harder. That can't save you. But what have you put your faith in? Right? What's the object of your faith? And verse 31 clearly says, the object of your faith is none other than who? The Lord Jesus, the risen Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So our faith has a clear sense of identity there in verse 31. John has spent much time piecing together the identity of who Jesus is, and the facts now speak for themselves. I mean, if this hasn't convinced you up to this point, what more could be said, right? That's That's the sense of what we're getting to now in verse 31. Jesus is the anointed one that God has promised since the beginning of time, and the one his people have been waiting for. John told us from the beginning what he has intended to prove. He's dedicated the bulk of his writing to building his case, and his conclusion is now not only undeniable, it is inescapable. You can't just walk away and say, well, you know, that's good for the preacher. No, This now demands a decision. You cannot deny it. You either accept it or you reject it. The evidence speaks for itself. The carpenter's son was sent from God and his identity cannot just be accepted like he was a really great guy. What a great example. But must be all that he claims or nothing. The identity of Jesus cannot be compared with anyone else in history. He is who what C.S. Lewis wrote, he, must, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord, the Son of God. If what you are trusting for your salvation is not identified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, then as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, if it's not identified by the risen Savior, then your faith is in vain. So it's just vanity. Coming to church, claiming faith, whatever other vocabulary you use, it's vanity if not for the risen Savior. But when you come to faith in Jesus, there is a sense of certainty about it. Verse 30, remember we're working our way back. Now, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book of John. There are many, many, many other stories, circumstances, things that Jesus did that even are not themselves recorded. To the person ignorant of what Jesus has done, faith is like the non-existent emperor's clothes. Remember that story? And is defined by the schoolboy that says, faith is believing What you know is not true. That's sad. But that's the way many people live their lives. They think that faith is somehow believing what isn't really true. And if I can just believe it enough, maybe it'll come true. Faith for many is the proverbial shot in the dark. But our faith is not just confirmed by who Jesus is, but by what Jesus has done. It's a pattern repeated by Jesus over and over in the word and deed. Word and deed. Peter built on that pattern at Pentecost in the first great sermon to the church in Acts chapter 2. Jesus was approved of God and confirmed by miracles and wonders and signs which you yourself know. Word and deed. Paul used this pattern of things heard and seen 
Philippians 4. James used this pattern of things heard and seen, James 5. John would later confirm it in 1 John chapter 1. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. The resurrection is the final critical piece of information and confirmation of Christ's claim to be the Son of God. That Christ would forecast His own death, that's pretty daring. If I could stand before you today and say, you know, in three days this is going to happen and I'm going to die. Well, that's pretty daring. You know, that's, you, well, you might, mm, you're not sure about it. But to tell of His own resurrection, that certainly was met with skepticism, right? Because they still didn't put the pieces together. But not only did He forecast His death, which would just come tomorrow, not only did He tell of His resurrection, which they still had not understood, but He said, and furthermore, it's going to be in three days, right? Three days. And it's confirmed as fact. And John's point, of course, is that it is so certain that even the skeptic is forced, challenged to consider it and perhaps believe. The tense with which John writes his conclusion, I mentioned it earlier in verse 31, is that by this you might not just believe, but that for those of you when you come to those hard, difficult circumstances of your life, it's written in a sense that you might reflect back on this. Not just the resurrection, but everything you know of Jesus, and that you might continue to believe. There's also a sense of resilience in these verses. Verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas saith unto them, came Jesus, and the doors being shut, stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then Thomas saith, reach in your, or, then he saith unto Thomas, Reach in your finger. Verse 28, And Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God, even though Thomas had been absent, and even though now Thomas expresses some doubt, Jesus seems to accept the fact that all of us will have moments of doubt and questions for which we will struggle for answers. I do not hear in the voice of Jesus and His tone or anything that He said, I don't hear any condemnation of Thomas. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't ridicule him but instead leads him through his doubts to one of the greatest confessions of faith, my Lord and my God. In a way, this experience is another confirmation of the trustworthiness of the apostolic message so that those who, though never seeing you and I, though never seeing, yet we can believe, and on days that you have more questions than you have answers, you can go on believing this resilience or perseverance of our faith gives us what, Philipp, what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 4, the peace of God which passes what? Understanding. 
It's beyond my circumstance. It's beyond my ability to understand. It's beyond the normal. And it'll keep your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. And you notice that repeated phrase there in verse 26. It's repeated there in verse 21. It's repeated there in verse 19. Peace be unto you. Jesus does not just miraculously reveal himself, but demonstrates his concern for them personally with a sense of encouragement. Verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. When he had said it, he showed unto them his hands, his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said again unto them, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto him. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now the first sense of encouragement is in that word peace, which Jesus first promised to leave them with upon the completion of his work back in John 16. Remember when we came through that great Paschal discourse, the great what, four chapters, I think, that led up to this time when Jesus was speaking intimately with his disciples. John 16 and verse 33, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Another sense of encouragement is by the power of the Holy Spirit that you see there in verse 22. Previously, Jesus said in John 14, I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Jesus, in the following chapter, John 15, He identifies the Comforter, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father. He will testify of me. And by this power we are encouraged to proclaim the gospel. And that's what verse 23 is all about. Don't stumble over this. Don't let somebody take it out of context and suggest that some person on the face of this earth has the power to forgive sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. Many translations will try to simplify this word remit. And they'll use the word forgive. And by that... It terribly is misleading and is used to promote false doctrine. I won't go into that. But in the King James, it does leave the word remit, and so you stumble over it, which is okay by me, because that forces you to try to figure out what in the world is the word remit. Remit means to send away, to forsake, to set loose, yes, to forgive, but in the sense of, of, of letting that go. Well, to call men, the encouragement here is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Remember, that's what Christ has called them to do, that they might now go forth and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, to call men to repentance, 
to preach the gospel. And yes, by that, but only by that, to set men free from the power and penalty of their sin. Do you remember in our study of John, and I won't go back and rehearse the whole thing, do you remember that when Jesus was talking to His disciples and talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then as a result of that, He said, there will be greater things you will do. What are those greater things? And we identify it by greater miracles or greater things. No, no, no. It's verse 23. That by simply telling someone else the gospel of Jesus Christ, by simply letting them know that there is a Savior, He's identified by Jesus, the Son of God, sent from the Father, dead, buried, and rose again. The greater miracle is that you can introduce somebody and give to them, offer to them, show them how they can receive eternal life. Remember me telling you, if you fed everybody on the face of the earth, they still got hungry. If you healed everybody on the face of the earth, people still got sick. And even though you would raise one, which to me is the saddest thing of all, to be Lazarus, right? To be Lazarus. And even though you would raise one from the dead, he's still going to die. The greater thing is that you offer to someone eternal life. That by believing, they would have eternal life. That's to remit sin. To set someone loose from the power of their sin by the blood and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins are not forgiven by apostolic authority, but by the authority of God's Word, I can call you to come be forgiven of your sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. Is there any greater privilege that I could have or that you could receive but for the remission of your sins. I have the one thing and the only thing that can bring forgiveness to the world. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are encouraged here with peace. We are encouraged by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are encouraged to proclaim the gospel. Verse 31 again, that key verse, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, when you take all of this together, verse 19 down through verse 31, there's this sense of direction that takes us somewhere other than what the world has to offer. That by believing you might have everlasting life. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am come that they might have what? Life, and that they might have it more abundantly. John 17, and this life is eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This life is not mystical, it's not mysterious, but by virtue of the name of Jesus and all that he has accomplished in his death and resurrection, in a world that claims life is what you make of it. The gospel sets us free in a totally different direction. And life is what now Christ can make of it for you. And given the emptiness of the world's promises, this new life, this new purpose, 
this new direction is the greatest message we can give. I want to read from this sort of context of the resurrection in Peter's writing, 1 Peter chapter 1. You're welcome to turn there with me, but 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So remember, if Christ has not risen, your faith is dead. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold, perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, remember, having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. John chapter 10, or excuse me, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But we know that many people are that, remember that sermon back in John, I forget the chapter now, but we talked about people being 18 inches from salvation, right? That's the average distance from the head, the brain, to the heart. A lot of people have it right here. They've got some understanding, they've got a sense of faith, they've been in church, whatever, you know, they got it, but they don't have it, right? 18 inches from salvation, they've never truly believed that the Lord Jesus, sent by the Father to be the Savior, did not just live a good life, even a perfect life, or a great example, he died in our place, was buried and rose again. The Lord is risen. risen Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much in this journey through the Gospel of John that you have given evidence beyond any doubt, not just that you were sent from God, not just that you were a great teacher, not just that you did many wonderful things. Not even just that you sacrificed, giving us some sense of example, but that you died in my place. And your shed blood accomplished what the blood of the Old Testament bulls and goats could not achieve. And that by believing in the name of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, 
and coming again, even so come, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said,